Well, join me where we left off last week in John chapter 12. We're continuing to walk through the ministry of Jesus through John's gospel. And we are in verses 37 through 43 for this morning and next week. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43. And as you're turning there, I want to begin by asking a question that we have all no doubt asked at some point in our Christian life. The question is this, why do people reject the gospel of Jesus? Why do people reject the gospel of Jesus? We could make the question more personal. Why do my own family members, perhaps my son or my daughter, maybe a parent, a spouse, Why do they, living under the guilt of sin, refuse the offer of full forgiveness and complete pardon? Why are my closest friends not interested in being reconciled to their creator, the one who made them and owns them and loves them? Why do my neighbors who search endlessly, endlessly for satisfaction in this life Why do they refuse fullness of life in Christ? Why do people reject the gospel of Jesus? These are perplexing questions because to us who believe, unbelief makes no sense. Makes no sense because the gospel is the greatest news to be heard. That creator God, though holy and transcendent, sent his son to this earth in grace. And he sent his son because he has great love for us. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, willingly and lovingly submitted to his father. And took upon himself human flesh, leaving heaven for earth. Why? To live the sinless life we could never live and pay the penalty for sin we could never pay and rise again from the dead defeating an enemy we could never defeat in order to secure an eternal destiny we could never earn. Why would anyone, why would anyone reject that message? It's a glorious gospel. It promises what no other gospel promises. It's filled with hope. It's grounded in love. It comes from heaven. It reaches into eternity future. And yet, that gospel is rejected on a daily basis. Unbelief seems to reign throughout this world. In fact, unbelief is how the public ministry of Jesus actually ends with the nation of Israel refusing to come to their Messiah in saving faith, scoffing at every one of Jesus' gospel promises and mocking every claim he made about himself. You remember how our passage ended last week. Look at verse 34. The crowd sneers at Jesus. Who is this Son of man. Jesus, you've claimed to be the glorious Son of man promised in Daniel 7, the one who will rule the nations, be served by the peoples. But then you say you must first die. 
Yes, you'll reign, but you'll also be raised up on a cross. That's verse 32. You say you'll be the all-glorious son of man, but also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. We don't want you. It's not the Messiah we've been looking for. It's not the king we wanted. We don't want a humiliated king. We want an honored king. We want a king who will wield a sovereign scepter, not die on a humiliating cross. We want the Messiah who's going to crush Rome. Not a suffering savior who will be beaten and bloodied and executed. Who is this son of man? We want the conqueror, the warrior, the crusader. We want him now. Not the crucified son of man. This is how the public ministry of Jesus is ending. Who is this son of man? Those are words of rejection from an unbelieving crowd. This is Monday of Jesus' Passion Week. He will die on Friday in about four days, and this is how his public ministry ends. So the question we should be asking at this point, as John now transitions to the cross, the question we should be asking is the why question. Why did Israel not receive their Messiah? Why did they scorn his love? Why did they not want his promises? Why did they dismiss every miracle he performed? Those are the questions John answers in verses 37 through 43. Eleven and a half chapters of Jesus' glory is now concluded. Why would this glorious Jesus be rejected by his people? Notice the key phrases in this passage. Look at verse 37. The end, they were not believing in him. Verse 38, the question is asked, who has believed? The implied answer is not many. Verse 39, they could not believe. The middle of verse 40, they would not see and perceive. The middle of verse 42, they were not confessing him. This is John's explanation for Israel's unbelief. Now, we were warned at the beginning of the gospel that this is how the ministry would end. John 1, he came to his own, and those were his own, did not receive him. But we were never told why. John allows us to see it play out. We were never told why. Was it because God failed in his saving purposes? Is that why? Or maybe it's because Jesus failed in his mission. Or maybe it's because Jesus' gospel is just not true. It shouldn't be believed. Or maybe it's because there was not enough proof offered, not enough evidence given, not enough miracles performed. Let's bring those questions to us today. Why do people reject the gospel that we explain? Is it because we didn't use the right words? Is it because we didn't offer the right apologetic? Is it because we couldn't answer all of their questions? The blame's on us. Maybe we weren't convincing 
enough or prepared enough or persuasive enough. Again, why do people reject the gospel of Jesus? And this is a necessary question to answer if we are going to be faithful ambassadors for Christ because the answer to this question, the answer to this question, why do people reject that answer will determine our methods of gospel ministry. Are we responsible to sell the gospel like a salesman? Or are we responsible to explain the gospel as a witness? The answer to the question, why do people reject the gospel, will also determine our message How upfront are we to be about Christ and his cross and man's need for salvation? How upfront? How direct? How specific? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but all those topics are, are offensive today to the unbelieving mind. How upfront are we to be? Is it okay to talk about sacrifice for sin? Is it okay to talk about sin? Or are those topics actually hindrances to someone believing in Jesus? Add to this, the answer to that why question also determines the way we measure success in our evangelistic work. Are we successful ambassadors if we close the deal? Or are we successful ambassadors for Christ even if the gospel is rejected? It's an important question. It it determines our method, our message, and our measurement. Well, let's hear John's answer to this why question. Let's start in verse 37. Here's John's answer. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and He hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory. And he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval, the glory of men, rather than the approval, the glory of God. Four reasons why people do not believe the gospel of Jesus. We'll look at the first two this morning. We'll draw out application as we go. Here's the first reason. Reason number one, people reject the gospel because of the hardness of their hearts. People reject the gospel because of the hardness of their hearts. So understand, there is no amount of evidence we can give to change a heart. We can't change a heart from unbelieving to believing. There's no logical, there's no historical, there's no philosophical argument we can make or proof we can offer to convince an unbelieving mind. 
Unbelief is always irrational. Unbelief is always illogical. Unbelief is not because of a lack of evidence. Unbelief is because of a hardened heart. It's what we see in verse 37. But though he, Jesus, had performed so many signs before them. So John is summarizing now the last three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Each phrase John chooses here is important. It shows just how hard the heart of Israel had become. Take that first phrase, so many. Tasutas, it actually begins the sentence in the Greek. There's the emphasis, so many miracles. The word here points to both the quantity, so many in number, and the quality the sense of so great in power of Jesus' miracles, the quantity and the quality. Take the quantity of Jesus' miracles. Jesus performed 36 specific miracles throughout the gospel record, 36. John has given us seven miracles throughout his gospel, seven specially chosen signs. But that number 36 does not even come close to the total number of miracles Jesus performed. There's these general statements scattered throughout the Gospels. Think of Mark chapter 1. And the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases. Think of Matthew 15. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, Crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and he healed them. There's other general statements you could add to those. You do the math, all in all, Jesus performed probably thousands of miracles in his three and a half year ministry. Thousands. Well, let's compare that to the most well known Old Testament prophets. Let's take Abraham. David, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Let's throw John the Baptist in there, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Let's put it all together. And it doesn't even matter if you can't do math. You put it all together and here's what you come up with. Zero miracles. Zero. Moses was used to perform 13 miracles throughout his life. Joshua performs two miracles. Elijah, five. Elisha, 12. But now here comes Jesus. Thousands of miracles performed. He sets himself apart from every prophet that came before him. He gives them visual proof that he was the unique son of God he claimed to be. Thousands of miracles. B.B. Warfield put it this way, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which was his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for three years of his ministry. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration. Where he went, he brought a blessing. One hem, but of the garment that he wore, 
could medicine whole countries of their pain, one touch of that pale hand could life restore. But it wasn't just the quantity of miracles John points to here. Again, that phrase, so Mary, so many, carries with it the idea of quality. Quality. Jesus' miracles span the spectrum of existence. His miracles included power over illness, from lame legs to blind eyes, from blindness to leprosy. Jesus showed a power over nature, the natural realm. He walked on water. He stilled a storm. He directed fish to a net for all the fishermen out there. Would have been great. Fish go there. Peter can't catch fish. What happens? Jesus says, fish go to the net. There they are. Jesus performs miracles in the supernatural realm, commanding demons, thousands sometimes, of demons to come out of a person. On three different occasions, he showcases his power over death. In fact, back in chapter 11, that is the climactic miracle of John's presentation of Jesus with three words, three words, Lazarus, come forth. Three words, Jesus shatters Sheol. He restores life to a decaying body. He gives Lazarus strength to walk out of his tomb. Each miracle Jesus performed was instantaneous and complete. They were all gracious and compassionate, even done for some of his enemies who rejected him. They are also unique. Think about the once blind man he's healed. What does he say? Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. I've never seen this before. He's in a class all his own. So the quantity, numbers in the thousands, the quality, matchless in their sphere. Look again at verse 37. John also adds that these miracles were unforgettable. They were unforgettable. Notice the phrase. These are the signs he had performed. That's a perfect participle. Here's what it means. There's a permanent character to the miracles. Permanent character. The people couldn't forget them. They're etched in their minds. And the miracles are confirming Miracles. They're confirming evidence of what Jesus claimed about himself. That's from the word sign that John uses, the signs that he performs, translated as signposts. Every miracle Jesus performs is a pointer, it points to something greater than the miracle, something about his person, his character, his nature, his mission. Jesus raises the dead. That's a signpost. It shows that he's the Lord of life. It's a signpost. He will do what he promised to do. He will one day resurrect every dead body out of the grave. John chapter 5. Jesus walks on water. Signpost. It points us back to the Old Testament. Who walks on the water? Answer, God does. God tramples, Job says. On the waves of the sea. 
Jesus heals the lame, heals the blind. It shows himself to be the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. Who would the Messiah be? He would be the one who opens the eyes of the blind. He'll make the lame leap like a deer. All of this is confirming evidence of who Jesus is. And then notice the phrase in verse 37, before them. John makes sure to note that Jesus performed these miracles publicly. None of Jesus' miracles were prearranged. There's no smoke or mirrors. There's no inkling of dishonesty or trickery about them. That's why the crowd said, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? They see the miracles. There's no dishonesty here. In fact, look back at chapter 11, verse 47. The religious leaders, they hate Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. But notice what their conclusion is. They don't want to kill him because he's tricking people to believe he's a miracle worker. Verse 47, here's their conclusion. This man is performing many signs. That's why they hate him. They admit the signs. Jesus' miracles were public, undeniable, irrefutable. You can't come up with a more powerful apologetic for the gospel than thousands of miracles performed publicly. Can you? What greater proof is there? What greater proof can be given to show that Jesus is who he claimed to be? What greater proof than raising someone from the dead? Giving sight to a man born blind. I can't come up with a more convincing argument to turn to Jesus in saving faith. And yet, what do we read in verse 37? What is Israel's response to undeniable evidence and proof? Here it is. They were not believing in him. Imperfect tense. They continued to not believe in Jesus, continued to reject him, reject everything he offers them. It wasn't an evidence thing. Unbelief is not an evidence issue. Unbelief is a heart issue. Their heart was hard. Their eyes were blind. Their ears were deaf. Their mind was darkened. So often we're surprised when someone rejects the gospel. We might be surprised that they reject Jesus, but that's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Think of Luke 16. If they, the unbeliever, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if a sinner is hardened to God's word, hardened to his gospel, if unbelief is rooted in their heart, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Not even a messenger resurrected from the dead. He could be clothed with all the splendor of glory. He could come back from the dead smelling like the sulfur of hell. Not even that can convert an unbelieving heart. 
It's not an evidence issue, it's a heart issue. This is the first reason John gives for why people reject Christ's gospel. It is because of the hardness of their heart. But where does that leave us then? Because I don't know if anyone's going around raising people from the dead. So where does that leave us? We're ambassadors for Christ. What application can we draw from this? Let me give you three ways that we can apply this. First of all, we should not be surprised when we find ourselves on the receiving end of gospel rejection. We should not be surprised. So did Jesus. He's the miracle worker. We should not be surprised by unbelief. Again, it's a spiritual issue. It's a heart issue. Second, we must understand our limits. We must understand our limits when it comes to changing a heart. We cannot argue someone into the kingdom. No matter how watertight our logic might be, or how honed in our debating skills might be, we cannot convince, use Jesus' words, we cannot persuade the unbelieving skeptic into the truth. We don't have that power. In the words of one author, he writes this. When people do not want to believe, they will always find a way of discounting even the strongest evidence. Ever been there? See that? The reaction of unbelief is always to ignore the power of God, even if it is at work before one's eyes. Jesus' miracles here, case in point. We must understand our limits. Which then leads to a third implication here, application. We must not, we must not cower away from an unbeliever. We must not wait to explain the gospel until we think we have all the answers to every skeptic's question. We must not wait. That's the tendency, right? I don't want to give that person the gospel because I'm afraid they're going to ask me a question that I what? Can't answer. A question I haven't thought of yet. That's the tendency. And so we cower. We stay silent. We don't want to get stumped. The truth of the matter is this. We have something better than the most comprehensive book of answers for every skeptic. We have something greater. We have the gospel of Jesus. And it is the gospel of Jesus that is not the power of man. It is the gospel of Christ that is the power of God for the salvation of souls. We have something greater. We don't need to be the wonder worker. We don't need to be able to answer every question we're ambassadors for Christ to explain the gospel, who explains the gospel clearly in a straightforward fashion. That's our calling. Romans 10, 17, faith, belief. One is moved from unbelieving to believing. Faith comes from hearing. Note it, not seeing. Not seeing the miracle. But hearing, and hearing what? Not every answer to the skeptic. No, it's hearing one thing. It's hearing the word of, about Christ. It's the gospel. This is how the hardened heart is broken. 
This is how blind I see. The Holy Spirit uses His Word, His Gospel, expressed by us, and He uses that Word to change the heart of man. James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, God's will, according to His timing, His choosing, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. He births us. This is regeneration. He gives us that new heart that we need. Question, how does He do this? What does He use? He brought us forth by the word of truth. The gospel of His Son. This is exactly what Jesus said back in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and Jesus sees unbelief. It's right in front of him. People leave, some, most, leave him, reject him. His disciples stay. This is what Jesus said. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit who grants faith. It's the Spirit who moves someone from unbelieving to believing Question again, how does the Spirit do this? What does He use? Next statement. It is the Spirit who gives life the words, the gospel, that I have spoke to you, our Spirit. That's what the Spirit uses. The words that I have spoken to you, our Spirit, and they are life. This is what the Spirit uses to give you life, to give you that new heart. And when we realize this, it is so freeing when it comes to our calling. Because the Lord does not hold us responsible to change the heart. The Lord does not call us to be a salesman for his gospel, expecting us to close the deal. He does not call us to be the apologist able to answer every question out there. Does not call us to be a debater who can argue someone into faith. Our calling is much simpler than all of that. He has called us to simply speak the gospel faithfully and then wait upon the Spirit to do His work on the heart. That's our calling. It's freeing. The Spirit uses our words, the gospel words change the heart. This is the first reason why people reject the gospel. It is because of the hardness of their heart. Yet it is a hardness that the gospel can break through the work of the Spirit. Leads into a second explanation John gives here. Second explanation for Israel's unbelief. And just to be up front, this might come as a surprise. Reason number two, people reject the gospel because of the, hard, because of the hardening hand of God. People reject the gospel because of the hardening hand of God. You have the hard heart of the unbeliever. Now, you couple that with the hardening hand of God. That is to say this, there are times... There are times when someone's rejection of the gospel, gospel becomes so habitual and consistent so prolonged and defiant 
that God may choose, not always, but God may choose to give that unbeliever exactly what he wants, more unbelief. And in so doing, the Lord will remove his restraining hand of grace from them and harden them in their sin even further. John tells us this is exactly what the Lord did with that generation of Israel. Their prolonged unbelief, described in verse 37, they were not believing, imperfect tense, continually rejecting Christ. And every miracle he gives, continually rejecting Christ, becomes, in verse 39, an inability to believe. Notice, from they were not believing to now verse 39, they could not believe. They could not believe. The judgment of God falls upon them, not at the great white throne, though it will, but the judgment of God upon them falls during their lifetime. God removes his restraining hand. He turns that generation over to their rejection, the rejection they wanted, the rejection they chose. And what was the result? Their hearts were hardened against Christ and his gospel forever. Notice verse 38. This, the unbelief of the nation, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, and now there's Isaiah 53, verse 1 being quoted. Fulfillment of Lord, who has believed our report. Again, the implied answer, not many. And to whom has the arm of the Lord, or more specifically, the power of the Lord? This is a reference to the thousands of miracles Jesus performed. To whom has the power of the Lord been revealed? Unbelief reigns throughout Israel. The message of Christ has been rejected. The miracles of the Messiah have been dismissed. This was to fulfill John's point here. He's emphasizing that unbelief never thwarts God's sovereign plan for his people. Never. Unbelief never thwarts God's sovereign plan for his people. It's tragic. Unbelief is tragic. It's irrational. It's evil. But even the greatest rejection, rejection of the Messiah standing in their midst, eye to eye, even here, the Messiah did not fail in his ministry because he was rejected. Again, bring application to us. The ambassador of Christ does not fail in his calling if the gospel is not received. But notice what John adds. Not only was Israel's rejection predicted, but Israel's rejection was an act of judgment by God. Continue verse 39. For this reason, what reason? Israel's persistent rejection of every claim Jesus made. For this reason, every miracle Jesus performed. For this reason, every sermon Jesus preached. Their rejection leads to God's hardening hand. 
For this reason, they could not believe. Unwillingness leads to inability. For Isaiah said again, he, and here's the question, who's the he in the prophecy? Who's the he? It's God. It's Yahweh. He has blinded their eyes, and he, Yahweh, hardens. The word here is numbed, made callous. He hardened their heart, the very center of their being, their heart. So that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I, Yahweh, heal them. I harden them, so I will not heal them. Persistent rejection of Christ led here to the divine hardening by God. We don't like to think about this side of God, do we? Remember who we're talking about here. It's Israel, God's chosen people. Well, think back in Scripture. There's another person, people, that God hardens. Who's that? It's Pharaoh. God does to this generation of Israel, even especially chosen people, he does to this generation of Israel what he did to the evil Gentile Pharaoh. Exodus 7, two times. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Exodus 8, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Exodus 9, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. 9.12, the Lord, Yahweh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. I believe it's 12 times in the story in Exodus you read that the heart of Pharaoh, yes, he hardened it. That is true. But 12 times we read that it was hardened by God. This is called judicial hardening. Judicial hardening. When personal rejection of God and his word becomes final and permanent. When rejection becomes even more deep-seated than it already was. This is when God removes his hand of restraining grace that once restrained an unbeliever's sin. And he takes his hand of grace away and God allows the depravity of that unbeliever to deepen and find expression in ways otherwise unimaginable. This is the act of God where he turns the unbeliever over to the consequences of their unbelief. This is the holiness of God. This is his judgment. We read about this in Romans 1. For even they, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Persistent rejection. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's idolatry. God will not be mocked. And those who refuse to repent of this, notice the process soon 
that rejection becomes judicial hardening by God. Verse 24, therefore, because of their rejection, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. He gives them what they want. Repeated in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. He gives them their unbelief, even more unbelief. And the result is they do the things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, on it goes. Continued rejection becomes judicial blindness and a deepened depravity. Now look at, at verse 35. Verse 35, notice this is what Jesus warned the crowd about. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. You don't have long. Walk, come to me in faith while you have the light. You won't always have the light of God's grace. No, darkness will overtake you. God's grace is about to set on you. Jesus knew the patience of God was about to expire. God is long-suffering. He's not forever suffering. Jesus knew his father was about to turn that generation over to their sin like never before. In fact, that is why that generation will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. They'll be deepened in their unbelief to do the unimaginable. Jesus says that God's judgment has fallen upon that generation, not at the great white throne, but judgment has fallen upon them during their lifetime. Again, application. What does this mean for us who are ambassadors for Christ? What are the implications? There's four of them. Number one. We must understand the seriousness of not believing the gospel of Jesus. We must understand the seriousness of not believing the gospel of Jesus. Unbelief is not merely indecision and it's not indifference. Unbelief is rejection of God himself. It's idolatry. It's rejecting the son. It's dismissing his gospel. It is, Romans 1, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an idol. And again, God will not be mocked. We must understand the seriousness of unbelief. A second implication is when we see unbelief or are on the receiving end of unbelief, we must not grow discouraged or think that the gospel is weak or meager. Instead, we must remember that even unbelief fits within the sovereign design of God. Remember, even here, unbelief was fulfillment of prophecy, the design of God. As I said, as the final week of Jesus' life plays out, 
The hardened heart of Israel here in John 12 is the means God will use to put his son on the cross. It's the greatest display of God's glory. His son on the cross happened at least in part because of the hardened heart of unbelief. Even God's judicial hardening will bring him glory. A third implication. We must never presume to know when or on whom God's judicial hardening has taken place. We don't make this presumption. That's not our role, that's not our calling. Our calling is to bring the gospel to an unbeliever in compassion and in love. Our calling is to wait on the Spirit to work. And whether the Spirit changes the heart, that's His prerogative, not ours, or whether the Spirit uses His gospel to harden a heart, that's His work, His prerogative, that's His decision to make, not ours to know. So we can't sit back and say, well, God just simply hardened their heart. I'm not going to give them the gospel. That's not our place. I'll let you know a little secret. Us and Jesus, we're different, okay? Jesus knew that, we don't. Which leads to a fourth implication that we can draw here. Fourth implication, when we speak about the gospel, we should speak with a sense of urgency. Not be afraid even to issue a warning. Maybe it's the warning that Jesus used in verse 35, for a little while longer the light is among you. Don't presume upon God's grace, don't take it for granted. Maybe it's the warning Isaiah gave his generation, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Implication, the Lord will not always be near or found. This changes our ambassadorship. Because when we know the real possibility of God's judicial hardening, when we know that is a real possibility, we, 2 Corinthians 5, we will truly begin now to beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Brings us to verses 41 through 43. We're going to pick it up there next week. Father, There is so much more to say, so many more applications to draw from this text. Yet let us take the major applications to heart and not only be hearers, but doers. May we be faithful ambassadors who are urgent in our calling. May we not think that Regeneration of a heart is dependent upon us, how well we speak, how knowledgeable we are. Let us be faithful to point people to Christ and wait on your spirit to move people from unbelief to belief. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.